0: Muy buenos días. Él no que soy medio guatemalteco. He didn't tell you that I'm half Guatemalan. My mother was Guatemalan, and my father was the son of Irish immigrants. And uh, as some of my Latin friends will tell me, I'm probably the, the tallest Guatemalan in the history of the world. <laughs> but this morning. I want to talk about, or they've asked me to speak about, a very difficult topic. It's the topic of immigration. And for me, it's, it's personal. Este mi gente. These are my people. I would go to Guatemala every summer growing up. We'd spend our summers in Guatemala, and the language, the culture, uh, the food. I have family there. And then I went and I talked in Guatemala at a seminary in Guatemala City for about 15 years before coming to Denver. And when I came back to the U.S., after being away for so many years, I encountered this issue of immigration. But what struck me as I began engaging people was that it was not a Christian conversation often, even though people claim the Christian faith, it was very much about the economics and the social pressures. It was about crowded schools with 20 different languages. It was uh, new neighborhoods and apartment buildings. And then they would say things about Hispanics. But you see, I look Anglo, don't I? And I'm six foot six. I don't have an accent when I speak English. And then I would think to myself, these are my people. Why do you say these things about them? Do you know any? And the challenge then was to begin to ask people to think very self-consciously. As Christians, what it means to have a Christian point of view on immigration. He mentioned, Chris did, the Middle East. Well, a couple of years ago, the United Nations estimated about 220 million people migrating worldwide. Now we could add probably millions. There's four million Syrian refugees crowded into Jordan, Lebanon, Turkish border, and some trying to get into Europe. If you follow the BBC, which gives you the world news, Ships sinking in the Mediterranean full of immigrants from Africa and the Middle East, drowning as they try to get to European soil. This isn't a U.S. issue. It's a global issue. And we shouldn't think about it as Christians just as the U.S., We need to begin to ask ourselves a different kind of question. With over 220 million people migrating, looking for food and a peaceful world for their children, what does it mean to be a Christian now? See, what does it mean to be the church now? And you've reframed the question in terms of Christian mission and not nationalism you've changed the whole foundation of the values that will even drive the conversation than the nationalism of political pundits and the sound bites on the radio what's amazing in all of this is that when you go into the scriptures you will see in first peter chapter 2 that migration actually is a metaphor for the christian faith It tells us that we are all sojourners, that we are all strangers in a strange land. It is so central to the mind of God that now it becomes a way of describing the Christian life. We are all immigrants in a strange place. The problem is that for many of us, this country is no longer strange. We rather like it and we want to keep the strangers out. But you've seen how this country's changed even over the last couple of years. And if you are a confessing Christian, I can guarantee you that it is gonna get stranger and stranger to live in this country. We will be increasingly different because of the values that we hold. And we will learn what it means to be the alien. And now if we begin to appreciate that, we can begin to see that the more we understand about immigration, the more we get to know immigrants, maybe we will actually begin to understand more about what it means to be a Christian. They know what it means to be strange. They know what it means to be marginalized. They know what it means to speak a language that other people don't speak. And increasingly, our Christian language will not be the language of this country. And now we begin even to see the Bible with a new lens. And we begin to see that the Bible is full of migration stories. It's full of migration metaphors. And when I present this material, and I've written on it, and Chris might announce that later, and I speak on it, and usually when I speak to a majority culture audience, it's like, oh, wow, we didn't know that was in there. It's everywhere. When I speak to an Hispanic audience, it says, Wow, yo no sabía que esto estaba en la Biblia. <laughs> Ahí estamos nosotros. Esos our historias. And they find themselves in the stories. See, we need to begin in a different place. Oftentimes, the national conversation is about legal status. That's where it begins. And that's a place you need to get to because you have a country to run. But is that the place to begin the conversation? Is legal status? Maybe we should begin the conversation with their humanity. That they are people made in the image of God. Even the language we use colors the conversation. We call them aliens. That's the same word we use for outer space creatures. See, when does an alien become a human being? In Genesis chapter 1, we learn that all humans are made in the image of God, which talks about their incalculable worth. But it also says that humans are made to subdue and to rule the earth and to steward the earth. Now we're talking about human potential. And so all the immigrants who are here, whether they have documents or not, are bringing all kinds of potential to the country. You'll see a video a bit later of El Puente. And you see kids studying and learning. And now when you talk about law, now you're talking about facilitating all this potential for the national good. The legal discussion has shifted and now the legal discussion is not about punishing them for not having a piece of paper. It's about how to channel them in to the national life with all the energy, all the knowledge, all the potential that they have for the national good. As human beings, the conversation changes. And the Bible both old and new, is full of all kinds of stories about migration. Let me give you some. Some of you know the story of Abram. He receives the promise at the beginning of chapter 12 of Genesis, and as they move into Palestine, what we would now call Palestine, Israel. Bill's altars. sounds very good, but In the middle of that chapter there's a famine in the land and, And they begin to migrate to Egypt looking for food That's why people move Looking for food And we know from archaeology that Egypt had constructed a series of forts Along its eastern frontier to monitor people coming in and out Because of the Nile they always had water and they always had crops And so in the ancient world people were always trying to get in just to eat And in that story, what we find is that as as probably as they approach one of these outposts, Abram, you know, tells Sarai, his wife, look, if I ask you, tell them that you're my sister and not my brother, or my my, my wife. (laughs) That'd be a bit odd, wouldn't it? (laughs) But the point is this. They're willing to lie To get across the border, the great father of the faith is willing to put his wife at risk so that the clan can eat. She's willing to take that risk herself as a woman so that everyone can eat. She has to make the choice for the rest of the group. You see, desperate people do desperate things. There's a story of Joseph later on in the book of Genesis where he is taken into Egypt. He's sold by his brothers into slavery. And he ends up at Potiphar's house, hard worker, honest, man of integrity. He works his way up, and now he becomes steward of Potiphar's home, But his wife, Potiphar's wife, tries to seduce Joseph and he runs away. But who do you think the authorities are going to believe? Are they going to believe the foreign immigrant or are they going to believe the Egyptian woman? Well, he's the one who goes to jail. But in jail, he interprets dreams and he comes out and he's in Pharaoh's court as number two in the land. He obviously speaks Egyptian. He begins to help run the country. They change his name, they give him an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife, but when they have two sons, he gives them Israelite names, not Egyptian names. And when his brothers come, it's an interesting scene because he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Now that's a bit odd, if you know the story. Well, it actually makes sense. Because in Egypt at that time, if you were in that level of government, he would have shaved everything and painted his face. That's why they don't recognize him. But he understands what they're saying as they talk among themselves. You see, he never forgot his mother tongue. And when people say, well, why don't they learn English? Okay, you just told me you don't know any immigrants. Because it's hard. And they're working 24-7. And all those parents have energy for is to know enough English to go to work, go to the store. It's the kids in the schools that will learn the English. And then you go to an Hispanic church, which I attend in in Denver, and you see the parents talking in Spanish to one another, and the kids speaking in English to one another. And then the parents will talk to their kids in Spanish, and the kids will answer in English. You see what we don't realize When you talk about assimilation Which the majority culture just expects them to do It's the negotiation of loss The loss of your language The loss of your food The loss of your values as a family When we were moving back to this country After being Guatemala for so many years And my kids were born in Central America I said we will not deny who we are We will expand who we are and raised with a Guatemalan mother, I was taught that you may say something is my father, but you will never say anything about my mother. And I told my sons, I'm a pretty laid-back kind of guy. But there's one line in this home that will never be crossed. You will never raise your voice against your mother or disrespect your mother. Esta es familia latina. And what you're seeing with the immigrants is this whole negotiation pattern, which is so hard. And Joseph has never forgotten his language. And then at the very end, when he presents his father to the Pharaoh, the Egyptians despised shepherds. And what was his father? A shepherd. Is that awkward? To present his father to the most powerful man on earth? And then when he's dying, he says, take my bones home. You say, oh, he never forgot who he was. You go to the story of Ruth. How long do I have? What's the cutoff time? I can't remember. I'm serious. Th- I have 13 minutes. Good grief. <laughs> Let me go very fast. I wish I was like those guys who do auctions, you know, speak real fast. Look at the book of Ruth. If you know the story of Ruth, she marries one of Naomi's sons. She marries an immigrant from Judah. And then, you know, her husband dies, and the other brother dies, and Naomi's husband dies, and then she goes back with Naomi back to Bethlehem. She now is the immigrant. And the story of Ruth is the story of how this, this Moabite woman becomes part of the community of Bethlehem. And at the very end, She gives birth to a son whose name is Obed. You see, Obed is a half-breed because his dad is Boaz. You see, people like me, we're Obed. I'm a half-breed. I'm the son of a Guatemalan mother and an American father. I am Obed. And now there's millions of us out there. Have you ever processed any of this as immigrant stories? And then you move into Old Testament law. And now you begin to see that the legal discussion in the Old Testament is grounded in a different set of values. It recognizes the vulnerability of the foreigner in the ancient world where there wasn't any social services. Where the foreigner in Israel, which was a peasant economy Peasants need land to work, but they were not part of the system And so they had to depend on the Israelites for work and for protection and for food And the law responds to all of those things And the law even allows them to enter into the worship of Israel The most precious thing that they had They were willing to open to the foreigner But then the question is, well, why do that? And the, God, and, and, and the law gives them two motivations. And the first motivation is historical memory. See, so don't ever forget where you came from. Don't ever forget your experience in Egypt. Remember, once you were slaves in Egypt, once you were the immigrants, and look what the Egyptians did to you. See, the Egyptians were afraid of you because of your numbers. Are they Are everywhere? They're multiplying. They're changing the demographic of the country. They're changing our culture. Go back to Exodus chapter 1 and hear yourself in this story. What the Egyptians do is they put all these laws into place to control that population, going to the extreme even of killing their little you know, male babies, even as they want them to keep working. Does that sound familiar? We're gonna make life as miserable as we can for these immigrants, but you know what? We need them to work. We need them on our farms, we need them cleaning our houses, we need them doing our landscaping, we need them to, to do the construction work. You see, we don't like them, but boy, we need their labor. You know, the most tragic immigrant story in the history of the country are the African Americans. They are an immigrant people who were brought here to work. And we enslaved them. And then we had a Civil War. Then we had the 13th and 14th Amendment. And then we segregated them, but we wanted them to keep working, didn't we? You want a tragic immigrant story? Look at the African Americans. See, immigration is about work. And look at what we've done to all these people that have come to work. The only thing that changes over time is the color of the skin. The second motivation is God himself. But let me show you some slides. The first slide is from the 1890s. It's from a, a magazine. These are the Irish, you see. The Irish who came because of the potato famine, this is who you were. Anybody from Irish descent? You're dirty. You're ignorant. And you're violent. You're nothing better than an animal. And so he put the Irish into the, the ghettos of Boston. Well, you know, what happened to that memory? What about the Italians? 30% of the Italian immigrants that came went home. They just couldn't take it anymore. Because we used to call them the WAPs without papers. Why did we forget that story? The next slide is an even more tragic story. You see, 1848, because of the Mexican-American War, we take 40% of the Mexican landmass which is now southwest U.S. 1849, the gold rush, and we import Chinese labor to build the railroads west, to work the mines and the farms. problem was the Chinese began to multiply. These coolies, we called them. So in California, they began to put laws into place that wouldn't allow the Chinese women off the boats because they didn't want the Chinese to multiply. There were race riots, lynchings in California. See, we forgot that story. 1875, immigrant law now becomes national for the first time, federal law. And the first major piece of legislation is in 1882 when we passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. No Chinese were allowed in this country. And if you were born in this country but of Chinese descent, you are not a citizen. Look at the cartoon. The Chinese trying to get over the wall and the ladder being pushed off. But you see, now that wall is a reality, isn't it? It's not a metaphor anymore. We're actually building one. That law was in place until 1943. We forgot that story. We forgot the story of the Japanese we interned in World War II in prisoner of war camps, even though they were U.S. citizens. See, we forgot that story. The next slide. Is the slide that represents the ambivalence These are all from the 1890s You see, the history just repeats itself And you see the immigrant trying to come in And on the post, if you can see it Probably not, maybe too far away It says, walk in, and Bitten's free, welcome You see, but there's Uncle Sam holding his nose And that's the national narrative We don't know what to do with them, And we're uncomfortable with them. But you see, we have forgotten the stories And the only immigrant memories that we have You know, are, are St. Patrick's Day And we all do a parade and drink green beer And wear green Or Oktoberfest, you know, we drink beer, right? And then we sing songs. And then if it's Columbus Day, you know, we drink, you know, red wine or something. (laughs) Those are immigrant memories. The remains of those immigrant histories But the very thing that God said not to forget how they abused you, how they they put you into forced labor, how they marginalized you, how they impoverished you, don't ever forget that story because when you do, you will become the Egyptians. And that's what's happened. We've become the Egyptians because we no longer remember. And our history repeats itself one more time. The last motivation, and with this I'll close. God in Deuteronomy 10 will tell us, you will love the foreigner because I do. Giving them food and clothing, and God does this through his people. If people ask me, why should we take care of the immigrant? The answer is very simple, because God loves them. Those of you in this room who are believing Christians, if I were to ask you, how did you become a Christian? You would tell me a tale of woe. You would tell me about a vulnerable time in your life that drove you to your knees. Well, the immigrants are vulnerable people. And in his grace, God has brought us millions of Christians in fact, if you go across the hall, that's where I think it is. It's going to be a service of vulnerable people. Padre Celestial, en esta mañana te alabamos, te glorificamos y nos arrepentimos. Oh Father, We praise you, but we also repent. Give us the heart that you have for the foreigner and help us have the courage to admit that we've forgotten our history. Help us to have the courage to do the difficult dance with immigration and to do so as Christians. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.